Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source for all things IFRS. I'm your host, Rahaza Sheikh. Today, I'd like to take the opportunity to reflect on our learnings over the past year following the IFRIC agenda decisions on cloud computing. There were two agenda decisions that were finalized. The first was in March 2019, which focused on whether a software as a service or a SaaS arrangement would give the customer a software asset. And the second was in March 2021, which focused on which implementation costs of a SaaS arrangement can be capitalized as a software asset. To talk us through this, I have Gina Huang joining me today. Gina is a director in the Accounting Consulting Services team in PwC Australia and is also one of our thought leaders in cloud computing related accounting issues. So welcome to IFRS Talks, Gina. Can you tell us a little bit about how you became an expert in this area of cloud computing? Hi, Rehaza. It's nice joining you today. In Australia, most companies have a June year end. So we were one of the first territories to implement the EFIC agenda decision on SaaS implementation costs. As such, I had the privilege to work on practical issues and reflect on them slightly earlier than others around the world. We only started to see a significant application activities and impact on companies' financial statements after the second agenda decision in 2021, even though the first agenda decision was published in 2019. Why was that? Yeah, that's an interesting observation. Before the second agenda decision, most companies were capitalizing implementation costs, whether the cloud computing arrangement provides them with a software asset or not. The first agenda decision didn't really attract a lot of attention at that time because the ongoing SaaS costs were typically still going through the income statement over the SaaS term. But the second agenda decision led to real impacts on companies' financial results as material costs that were previously spread over the SaaS term were now being required to be re recognized upfront through PL. In other words, it's a lot harder for companies to understand why they were investing millions into a new SaaS platform for long-term benefits, but much of that cost would not be recognized as an asset. Explaining that to investors was also more challenging. That's why there have been a lot of discussions and debates since last year. With the impact of the second agenda decision, the distinction between a software asset and a service agreement becomes critical. As a result, companies now also turned their eyes to the first agenda decision. With the continuous evolution of the business models in the cloud-based software industry, the assessment around whether a cloud computing arrangement provides them with a software asset or not becomes even more judgmental than it was a few years ago. That's really helpful to understand. So if the first agenda decision should be the starting point, can you summarize for us when a cloud computing arrangement would give rise to software assets? Sure. For cloud-based software, there are usually two versions you can get. One is an on-premise version, which is a traditional software license for a copy of software that you can take away and deploy to a cloud infrastructure you determine. The other is a cloud version, which is typically hosted by the software vendor in a cloud infrastructure they determine. To have a software asset, whether an intangible asset or lease asset, the customer has to be able to direct the use of the software 
and enjoy substantially all of the economic benefits. This could be easily met if a customer purchases an on-premise version of a cloud-based software and takes it to a separate hosting provider the customer chooses. However, if the software vendor hosts the software, this is when the assessment becomes judgmental. To meet the criteria, first of all, the customer would usually need to have an exclusive use of a software copy. Then it needs to have the, the right to direct the use of the software. If we used examples like decisions about on which hardware or infrastructure the software will run, and how and when to update or reconfigure the software. In practice, if the customer has the contractual right to take possession of the software at any time during the hosting period, and that right is substantive, the software would generally be considered as an asset the customer obtains separately from the hosting service. The right would be substantive if the entity can take possession of the software without significant penalty. And it is feasible for the entity to run the software on its own or by contracting with a separate hosting provider. So what is the key challenge in making the assessment of whether the customer has a substantive right to take possession of the software? One of the key challenges of this assessment is around assessing the significant penalty a significant penalty could be either prohibitive costs to take delivery of the software or a significant diminution in utility or value of the software if it is used separately. Companies may have genuine business reasons in some cases, for, for example, when their businesses grow to migrate a cloud-based software from one infrastructure to another, and they usually engage a third party to assist with the migration. Such migration is almost always costly. Making a hypothetical assessment of whether the migration costs would be prohibitive at contract inception can be a really difficult judgment in some cases. In our view, reasonable migration costs you would incur if you had purchased an on-premise version originally and taken it to another hosting provider wouldn't prevent you from having a software asset if these costs are not prohibitive. Such migration costs may include reasonable penalties to terminate a long-term hosting contract. However, beyond those reasonable costs, if, for example, you still have to make significant payments to the software vendor just to get the right to take the software away, this might indicate you probably don't have a software asset yet under the current arrangement. So to summarize, I have a software asset when I can demonstrate control. And in some cases, I might have control if I don't possess the software, but I have a substantive right to take possession of the software at any time. Yeah, that's right. So how would the above logic work in a situation in which the entity has an option at any time of the SaaS to terminate the SaaS and switch to an on-premise version of the existing software? Well, the test is whether you control a software asset from the beginning of the arrangement. An option in a SaaS arrangement to terminate the remaining SaaS term and switch to an on-premise version doesn't necessarily mean the customer controls a separate software asset from the beginning. As we just said, 
if the customer has to make significant payments to the software vendor in order to switch to an on-premise license arrangement, that may indicate the customer only has an option to obtain control of the software asset rather than it obtains control from the beginning. That's very helpful. So if the customer cannot demonstrate control over the software asset, then the arrangement will be considered a service arrangement and the second agenda decision will apply. So could you summarize for us the accounting principles for implementation costs of the SaaS arrangement? Of course, the accounting for SaaS implementation costs really depends on the nature of the activities. It's important to call out that the accounting treatment of some costs are not really impacted by the agenda decision. Some costs are typically expensed, for example, training costs, as IS38 tells us that we can't capitalize training costs. Some costs are generally capitalized, for example, costs to develop software code that the customer controls can be capitalized if they meet the recognition criteria under IS38. For other implementation costs of SaaS arrangements, usually referred to as customization and configuration costs, when they don't represent an identifiable intangible asset, one still needs to consider if they might represent a prepayment asset. To work this out, the test is whether the activities giving rise to the costs are distinct from the SaaS arrangement leveraging the guidance under IFRS 15 from the software vendor's perspe perspective. If the activities are distinct from the SaaS arrangement, the costs are expensed as incurred, usually when the activities are conducted. If the activities are not distinct, i.e. they are an integral part of the SaaS arrangement, then the costs are recorded as a prepayment for the SaaS arrangement and will be amortized over the SaaS term. There is a common misunderstanding that this test is form-driven, i.e. if you want to reach a prepayment conclusion, then you need to engage the software vendor to perform the work. That's not necessarily the case. It's true that if you engage a third party to perform the work, then it means the work is distinct from the SaaS arrangement and you have to expense the related costs. However, if you simply engage the software vendor to perform the work, a third party would do, that doesn't mean you can get to a prepayment conclusion. You are still required to make a proper assessment leveraging the IFRS 15 guidance. And if the work is truly the same as what a third party would do, then it's likely you still have to expense the costs. Okay, so if a customer does engage a software vendor to implement the SaaS, how do you assess whether the services are distinct leveraging the IFRS 15 guidance then? So IFRS 15 states that a service is only distinct if firstly, it's capable of being distinct. In this case, it means the implementation work can be provided by a third party. And secondly, it's separately identifiable within the contract. Determining whether something is separately identifiable is still challenging to the software vendors for revenue recognition purposes. So you could imagine how hard it could be for the customers whose business is not about software implementation. There's often confusion created by the use of terminologies. 
For example, in the IT world, integration and customization are commonly used to describe software implementation. And such words are also used in IFRS 15 to demonstrate something is not separately identifiable. So people may naturally think this means the software implementation work is not distinct from the SaaS. However, I have to highlight that the integration concept in the IT world usually means two or more things are working together. While use under IFRS 15, integration generally means that the performance risks of the SaaS and the implementation services are inseparable from each other, i.e. you could not deliver one without the other. Similarly, the customization concept in the IT world usually means making something work for a particular customer. And there may be different ways to achieve that. While under IFRS 15, customization refers to significant modification of the underlying product. In this case, it means significant modification made to the code of the underlying software. Setting up the software's existing code to function in a particular way for a customer is not really a customization activity in the way we would typically think about it under IFRS 15. These concepts can be hard to digest, I guess. So is there any time in which customization costs could be capitalized as an intangible asset? Yes, as mentioned, costs to develop software code that the customer controls can be capitalized under IS 38. This is actually another practical challenge we've seen in practice. IS 38 has been around for a while, but it's one of the most challenging standards. Applying it to the new cloud computing environment makes it even more difficult. In the beginning, people were quite cautious about the idea of recognizing separate intangible assets associated with a SaaS arrangement. However, over time, we've learned that it's actually quite common when a customer implements a comprehensive SaaS solution, for example, an ERP solution. It needs to write additional code to develop separate modules and interfaces on top of the SaaS. Usually the customer would either have full ownership of the additional code if it develops the code using its own IT staff, or it would have a license from a third-party developer meaning it can direct the use of a copy of the additional code and therefore has an intangible asset. It could also be the software vendor who wrote the additional code. But in such a case, it would be challenging to determine whether the SaaS provider is developing a separate intangible asset for the entity or merely enhancing the SaaS solution that will be provided to the customer over the SaaS term. In order to have an intangible asset in this case, you need to be really sure that the customer can direct the use of the additional code, even though it cannot direct the use of the underlying SaaS. This may be easily demonstrated if the customer can take possession of the additional code. But if the customer cannot take possession, then you need to make sure that the customer can make decisions on the maintenance modification and upgrade of the additional code, including who can perform the works and the customer needs to approve any such changes. Under such circumstances, from the vendor's perspective, the performance risks of the additional code are generally separate from the SaaS. 
In many cases, the additional code only works in the particular SaaS environment. In our view, this functional relationship doesn't impact the control assessment, but will be taken into consideration when assessing the useful life of the additional code. I also want to highlight that these principles equally apply to platform as a service or pass arrangements. In fact, the main purpose of the pass arrangement is for the customer to develop software assets in the pass environment. Thanks, Gina. So as we move to the end of the podcast, what would be your top tips to our listeners on approaching the accounting of cloud computing arrangements? Yeah, accounting for cloud computing arrangement is one of the areas that need cross-area knowledge and cross-team cooperation. So my suggestions would be when you are contemplating a cloud computing arrangement, make sure you spend some time in upgrading yourself on IT knowledge of the cloud basics. Otherwise, you might be overwhelmed by the terminologies used and how to apply the accounting principles to them and work closely uh, with your IT colleagues. Brief them of the accounting principles and what you are trying to figure out so that they can help you as best as they can. Finally, as always, do discuss the accounting implications with your auditor or accounting advisor so you don't get a surprise after the contract is signed. Thanks, Gina. I think that those are really helpful tips. Um, I particularly like the one around, you know, updating or upgrading yourself on IT knowledge. I think that's um, really important to really understand the substance of the arrangement. So once again, Gina, I'd just like to thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I find it's always useful to reflect on our learnings and share best practice examples. And I hope our listeners found that useful. For further information, um, our listeners can also refer to PwC's in-depth, referred to as INT 2021-09, which is available on Viewpoint. And we can link this in the talking points that will accompany this podcast. Thanks for listening. And until next time, happy accounting. The preceding program was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.